Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Becoming Buddha Cross River Meditation Center purposely. Becoming Buddha Cross River Meditation Center preserves and presents a human Buddha's Dhamma, initially recorded as the second book of the Pali Canon, the Sutta Pitaka. Our practice is informed from over 300 curated suttas restored by John to their original intent and practical focus. Our practice is empty of imagined insight, magical thinking, mystical grasping after, and unfounded speculation. Our teachers and students remain focused on these suttas to develop a direct mindful experience of establishing a well-concentrated, supple, and conflict-free mind through the Eightfold Path. It is the Eightfold Path that Siddhartha Gautama taught over the last 45 years of his life with the sole purpose of abandoning self-inflicted stress and suffering through ending ignorance of the Four Noble Truths. Morning, everybody. Um, glad you're all here. See you later. So this is the Giramananda Sutta, the Ten Understandings. This is um, an excellent sutta on the three marks of existence and how you know they call it the abandoning disease. John has it. So what what is disease? Disease is. The stress of birth, the stress of aging, the stress of illness. This is comes through what we think about, what we say to ourselves about what we think about, what we say to other people, how we are in the world. So all of those things involve the three marks of existence. Anicca, impermanence, anatta, not-self, and dukkha, the stress that's inherent in the world. So, we'll just get right into this. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying in Savati, in Jita's grove, Anatta Pandika's monastery. Venerable Giramananda was sick and distressed. Ananda went to the Buddha and asked him if he would visit Giramananda out of sympathy for him. Buddha said, Ananda, if you will go to Giramananda and tell him of the ten understandings, it is possible that upon hearing your words, his distress will be relieved. These are the ten understandings you should teach Giramananda. The understanding of impermanence. This Dhamma practitioner, well secluded while established in jhana, knows that the five clinging aggregates, form, feelings, perceptions, mental fabrications, and ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths, are all impermanent. 
This is the understanding of impermanence. So the Buddha uses the five clinging aggregates to teach impermanence. Um, the five clinging aggregates are this personal experience of confusion and stress. The personalization of form, feelings, perceptions, fabrications, and the resultant consciousness is the clinging that obscures reality and creates distraction, confusion, and suffering. So, form is impermanent. Feelings are impermanent. Fabrications are impermanent. Perceptions impermanent. All of these things that we're using to, through personalization, personalization acting as the glue that is clinging all of these aggregates together, that's how we define a self. That's, that's how we define what's suffering. So, all of those things are impermanent. Our, our idea of ourselves is impermanent. The understanding, the second one, is the understanding of not-self. The Dhamma practitioner, while well secluded, established in jhana, understands this. The eye is not self. Forms are not self. The ear is not self. Sounds are not self. The nose is not self. Aromas are not self. The tongue is not self. Flavors are not self. The body is not self. Tactile sensations are not self. The intellect is not self. Ideas are not self. Thus, he remains focused on not-selfness with regard to the six inner and outer sense media. This is called understanding not-self. So here the Buddha is using the sixth sense base to describe not-self. Describing the five physical senses plus the intellect. What we're using to interpret the world that comes through our senses. The third, the understanding of unattractiveness. This Dhamma practitioner, well secluded while established in jhana, knows the entire body surrounded by skin and filled with decay and unclean things. They know that there is this body of hair, nails, teeth, skin, muscle, tendons, bone, marrow, organs, feces, urine, phlegm, sweat, tears, pus, Understanding thus, they are always mindful of the unattractiveness of the body. This is understanding unattractiveness. So this is the teaching on the six properties. That this is really the, the only thing that the Buddha ever taught about what self is, is these six properties. Earth property, which is everything that is solid in the body. Bones, muscles, fat, organs, all of these things. The liquid property, blood, tears, sweat, saliva, interstitial fluid, urine, all of those things. The fire property, metabolism, all of that. The space property, all the space in between, the, the empty places in the intestines, the nostrils, the mouth, the ears, 
the um, sphincters of the body. The um, space property, consciousness property, the intellect, the ideas, thoughts. Um, and so all of those things are what we what is called the form aggregate. That's impermanent. These things are subject to aging, sickness, and death. They fade away. They dissolve and go back. So any attribution that we have of this thing being who we are as a self is not self. You know, we, we constantly see in the world today, and it's been this way for 2,600 years at least, the, the fascination and the, the, the cult of youth, the cult of a youthful appearance, the youthful body, there's, there's the, the film industry and TV industry is, is, depends on this worship of, of youth and the, and the youthful body. And it's, it's, this is exactly what this is talking about. The understanding of unattractiveness. These things are not who we are. This is subject to sickness, aging, and death. It's impermanent. So is what is impermanent what we are? No. <clears throat> I'm going to read John's words here as well. Realistically, understanding the body is the most effective direct experience of all three marks of existence. Rather than continuing ignorance of the inherent unattractiveness of the human body, the Eightfold Path provides the framework and guidance to remain dispassionately mindful while having a direct experience of the stress caused by ignorance of the Four Noble Truths. Direct recognition of the practical unattractiveness of the body begins to unite the mind in the body. The body is precisely where the results of ignorance are arising. Within a mind confused by its own wrong views, manifesting in an ever-changing environment, the ongoing stress and distraction of constantly attempting to establish a satisfied personal and permanent self is abandoned when the futility of attempting to do so becomes mindfully apparent. This is the purpose of the Buddha's Dhamma. The fourth understanding, the understanding of drawbacks. This Dhamma practitioner well secluded, while established in jhana, reflects on the drawbacks of the body. They understand the various pains of the body, such as disease of the senses, disease of the organs, disease of the mind, disease of the body, disease from changing weather, external world events. This is understanding drawbacks. So again, all of these are teaching about impermanence. The weather changes. In this particular season, it's very cold and windy and rainy and wet. If you're exposed to the elements in that environment, you might become ill. If you do not treat that illness, you might die. That's just, there's nothing personal there. That's just the way it is. In the summertime, you're out there, particularly in, in the area of, of India where the Buddha was, in the hot, hot sun, 
with biting insects and, and all of these kinds of critters, if you're exposed to that stuff for too long, you could get sick. If you get sick, you could die. So that's a drawback of human life. That's a possibility. That's, um, that's something that we have to take into account. There's no guarantee in life. We could become ill. We could die. In fact, we will die at some point. So it's the difference between simply taking care of yourself and obsessing about having a person for Right. So, you know, there's, you know, John had said this, maybe it was Tuesday or maybe it was even last night. Um, I think it was on Tuesday. The basic things that people need are, are food, clothing, medicine, and shelter. Those are, in general, for the majority of people on this planet, even within their traditional cultures, those things are available. Those things are readily available. Those things are taught through the generations. Those things are passed down how to provide food, clothing, shelter, and medicine for yourself as a human. Those are the basics. You take care of yourself so that you can take care of your family. In this case, we take care of ourselves so that we can understand the Dhamma and take care of our family. Getting, you know, butt implants or breast implants or hair implants or some other kind of augmentation to make a take a better picture of yourself, that's different than providing for the basic necessities of, of living. That's that's image. That's that's the the distraction, delusion, confusion of ascribing selfhood to an image. So that's that's the difference of of uh, between just taking care of yourself so that you can live a life, an honest life, versus spending money you don't have maybe to improve an image that will undoubtedly crumble in time. Understanding the drawbacks. Understanding, the fifth one is understanding of abandoning. This Dhamma practitioner, well secluded while establishing jhana, abandons all thoughts of sensuality all thoughts of ill will, all thoughts of harmfulness, all unskillful mental qualities. This is understanding abandoning. So that we, when we, this would include the hindrances. Abandoning the hindrances to practice. So, abandoning all thoughts of sensuality, all thoughts of ill will, all thoughts of harmfulness, all unskillful mental qualities. We have a path of practice that outlines this for us. The Eightfold Path outlines this for us, how to abandon sensuality, how to abandon thoughts of ill will, how to abandon thoughts of harmfulness. The Eightfold Path provides that framework for our lives to abandon unskillful mental qualities. Number six, understanding of dispassion. 
This Dhamma practitioner, well secluded while establishing jhana, understands this is peace. This is the exquisite stilling of fabrications. This is the relinquishment of all clinging. This is the cessation of craving. This is the full development of dispassion. This is complete unbinding. This is understanding dispassion. So we have to we have to develop a measure of calm in our mind and body in order to understand dispassion. In order to understand the relinquishment of craving, of these entanglements, of these attachments to constantly needing whatever is occurring to be different or better. When we understand this passion, we accept life as it occurs without needing it to be different. Number seven, the understanding of cessation. These two go together, dispassion and cessation. This Dhamma practitioner, well secluded while establishing jhana, understands this is peace. This is the exquisite stilling of fabrications. This is the relinquishment of all clinging. This is the cessation of craving. This is the full development of dispassion. This is complete unbinding. So you guys see how understanding of dispassion and understanding of cessation are together. They go together. They're two sides of the same coin. When we're not clinging and craving after constant sensory fulfillment, when we can practice restraint at the point of contact, and dispassionately observe whatever's occurring, there is cessation. There is the ending of that craving and clinging to establish myself in every thought, word, idea that comes up. John's words, a mind rooted in ignorance of four noble truths continuously self-identifies with impermanent objects, events, views, and ideas. From the direct experience of understanding the nature of stress, the wise Dhamma practitioner develops the exquisite experience of complete release from all ignorant views. So what is disease? It has something to do with being attached to ignorant views. Number eight, understanding the distaste for every world. This Dhamma practitioner, while secluded, well secluded while establishing jhana, refrains from all worldly entanglements, attachments, compulsions, and conditioned thinking. This is understanding distaste for every world. So, John's words here are excellent. The world is a metaphor for any fabricated mental construct that provides a repository for ignorant views. 
distaste for every world means that one has realized the foolishness of attempting to establish a self in any fabricated realm. A fabricated realm is any imaginary non-physical repository for ignorant views of self, including in a future life, a mystical realm, a Buddhist heaven, or any other imagined establishment of self. So this speculative craving is the world or another world. And when we understand that the world and everything in it is impermanent and arising and passing away on its own all day long, we develop dispassion for that. And through dispassion for that, we develop distaste for that. And through dispassion and distaste for that, we develop cessation of that. We don't cling to needing to establish ourselves in another speculative existence. Heaven, hell, or wherever. We're not, we're not moving away from what's happening. We're not moving away from what's occurring here, now. And when we do, we recognize it and go, oh, there I go again. I'm going, I'm going off into a fantasy again. And then what do we do when we recognize that we've become distracted with our thoughts? Come back to the sensation of breathing in the body. Number nine, the understanding of the undesirability of all fabrications. This Dhamma practitioner, well secluded while establishing jhana, is horrified, <laughs> humbled, and repulsed with fabrications. This is understanding fabrications. So, this is again, this is just this is just taking responsibility for what's coming up in us. And when we recognize ill will coming up, when we recognize uh, craving coming up, when we recognize hindrances, any of them, we're, we're, oh, God, there they are. Jeez, what, you know, why am I doing that to myself all the time? Why do I keep doing that to myself? But we go, okay, you know, we're, we're not going to beat ourselves up about it. We're not going to self-flagellate. We're going to take a moment, take a breath, unite our mind and our body, and come back to the sensation of breathing. Number 10, the understanding of mindfulness of in and out breathing. This Dhamma practitioner, well secluded, sits comfortably, legs folded, their body erect, setting mindfulness to the fore. Remaining mindful of the breath in the body, they breathe in. Remaining mindful of the breath in the body, they breathe out. While breathing with long breaths, they know they are breathing with long breaths. While breathing with short breaths, they know they are breathing with short breaths. This Dhamma practitioner trains themselves, I will breathe in and breathe out sensitive to the body. While breathing in, bodily fabrications calm. While breathing out, bodily fabrications calm. <clears throat> 
This Dhamma practitioner trains themselves to breathe in and breathe out sensitive to joy, sensitive to pleasure, sensitive to mental processes. This Dhamma practitioner trains themselves to breathe in and breathe out sensitive to the calming of mental processes. And this is something that we all experience while we're sitting, while we're practicing jhana, while we're establishing the four foundations of mindfulness. This Dhamma practitioner trains themselves to breathe in and breathe out sensitive to thoughts arising and passing away. This Dhamma practitioner trains themselves to breathe in and breathe out sensitive to satisfying the mind. This Dhamma practitioner trains themselves breathe in and breathe out sensitive to releasing the mind. This Dhamma practitioner trains themselves to breathe in and breathe out sensitive to impermanence. Breathe in and breathe out sensitive to dispassion. Breathe in and breathe out sensitive to cessation. Breathe in and breathe out sensitive to relinquishment. This is called mindfulness of in and out breathing. And all of that comes from the Anapanasati Sutta, as well as this Sutta here. Ananda. Go to the ill Girmananda and tell him of these ten understandings. If Girmananda develops these understandings, his disease may be relieved. Ananda, having learned these ten understandings from the Buddha, went to Girmananda. Girmananda, hearing Ananda, was relieved. His disease abandoned. That's the end of the sutta. So, let's go around and hear from our Sangha. John. Oh, you're muted. Sorry. Listening to you today and to, and to Ron last night, I realized what a magnificent college teacher I really am. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how I've mastered eye making along the way as well. I mean, there's two things of note uh, that you really brought out. One is the, the Buddhist in, in this sutta, he's describing first the establishment of recognizing and relinquishing all views ignorant of four noble truths in this sutta, in jhana meditation, and where we where we start doing the work, and then obviously we take it off our cushion. Um, the thing that was most struck me about this sutta, and this is another one I think I mentioned it last night. I, I never heard any of these suttas prior to coming to the studying the suttas for talk, and, and uh, this is another one that has such a powerful impact. The, the Buddha taught something that was radically different just as far as a, a so-called spiritual practice during his time, and it's just as radically different today. And look at what he's addressing here. He's not trying to, to provide some kind of salvific way of fixing a broken self or, or escaping this, this, this horrible world that we live in. He's putting us right into our experience. He's saying, as a consequence of having a human life, there's going to be difficult times. Stop running away from it. Use jhana meditation, your mindfulness as he finishes it. 
mindfulness of the breath in the body, the in and out breathing, to put you in your life so that you can actually experience it rather than come up with some fabricated way of looking at yourself that is just merely an escape or a way of fixing this broken self. And it's the, the brilliance in this relatively short sutta and, and how encompassing it is to me is just, just remarkable. And thank you for your great teaching. And what a wonderful song that we got there. I was looking at Noel. That's all. That's enough for me. Thank you, John. Karen. Hi, everybody. Hi, John. So lovely to hear you this morning. What a beautiful sutta. Uh, it was so clear even to this muddled head. <laughs> very, very clear. I really appreciate it. I know there are a lot of people here, and I'd love to hear from all of you. So thank you again. Thank you, Karen. Great to have you here. Anthony. Hey. Wow. Uh, that was such a wonderful suit. To thank, thank you for presenting it so well. Um, I, it, it resonates, and I've, I've heard it before, but every time I hear it, I draw more from it. And, um, you know, it's particularly poignant at this point in my life, being in a career change because there's all kinds of mixed feelings involved with that. And it, I think it, it just illustrated to me the importance of um, recognizing that your situation isn't permanent and that your feelings are going to come and go and charting a course, you know, just to, to be a better person and, and to be more tolerant. So thank you for sharing that. We're so happy to be here. Thank you, Anthony. Really good to see you here. Jeff, my Hi. friend. Hello, everybody. Hello, Jeff. Good morning. Um, yeah, this one speaks to me very personally just because I went through some surgery recently, and I think I we had a short discussion about that at one time. And, uh, you know, I... I uh, uh, I, I was trying to do without pain pills. I thought, okay, this is this is a good test of my powers of concentration. So <laughs> I went through this kind of major surgery, I guess, and uh, didn't take any pain pills for like, about a day and a half. I could last, and I was I was laying there breathing. I couldn't move, right? But I, I laid there breathing, and I thought, okay, I've got this, right? I was giving myself the pat on the back, you know, thinking, oh, I got this for sure. And then they came in, <clears throat> the doctor came in and says, no, Jeff, you can't just lay there with your eyes closed and breathe. You actually have to move, or we're going to have to call the coroner soon. <laughs> so I, I, I had to relinquish, and I, I guess the, the word that speaks to me out of this suda is uh, – uh, I was humbled. Uh, I was humbled by the fact that there's a lot more to that practice than than meets the eye, and uh, so yeah. So this 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 suda is really something that speaks to me personally. Thank you, Jeff. That's that's excellent. And you know, this is you know again pain. The pain of of the body is part of being human 
part of being here. There, there, because we have a body, there's going to be pain. There's going to be aging. There's going to be illness. It's, it's something that we can't escape. And um, we have a path of practice that, that helps us not resist that reality. Thank you for sharing that. Mateo. Hi, everybody. Um, yeah, I like this super because it's really, it's like to have a, like a very precise manual of uh, the main Buddhist teachings. And uh, it's, it's, all, it's all there. You can read all these points, it's all there. And uh, especially about the impermanent. Uh, to, to take from Jeff, you remind me what's happened to me yesterday. Uh, so we have like a very bad weather here and a tree just fall completely on my balcony, on my neighbor balcony, it crashed the balcony, it was a disaster. Oh. And, <laughs> and I don't know, my reaction was like talking to my neighbor and he just said, what are we going to do? I just replied, oh, even the balcony is impermanent. <laughs> 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 that's like, yeah, yeah, crazy, but I say, yeah, this is a good lesson. It's a very good lesson. And it was very yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, Matteo. I'm glad you weren't out there on the balcony or your neighbor. <laughs> Dr. Kev. Good morning, everyone. First, I love this view of the Sangha that we can, I can see everybody there. It's, that's a fantastic new thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, a couple of things with this, you know, one, when I, when you first look at it, it's like, oh gosh, here's another list. I get to memorize another list, <laughs> but it's, it's really, you know, just like, um, Mateo said, it's really, it's a manual and Actually, it is things we know. It's the Anapanasati Sutta, but it's presented in a way that Ananda could learn it to take it to someone else. And it was maybe more concise that way for them um, to be able to convey these these, um, these teachings. You know, I, I went into medicine thinking, and actually it was, it was a real thought, that I thought I would actually learn the nature of life and life and death and, and even natural life or whatever by learning about the body and learning about medicine and learning about every disease. And I thought there's some way, this is an entree into trying to learn all this. And I learned a lot about disease. I learned a lot about, you know, health, but I didn't really learn the, the essence of what we need to know. And in this way, the Buddha is the greatest physician. He has been described that way in the past. He's the greatest physician and the greatest psychologist, and he diagnoses the disease, and he gives the perfect treatment for the disease, and we're so fortunate to have this. So thank you very much. That's excellent. Thank you, Dr. Kev. That's excellent. And, you know, that's that's what we learned last night of, of being able to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Thank you for, for bringing that out. Thank you so much. Best for last. Thanks, Kev. Best for last, Brian. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm certainly not the best for last, but thank you. It's very humbling. Um, 
I had a similar thought to, to Kevin. I was like, holy crap, Ananda's memory is amazing. Like, I I would not have been able to uh, transcribe that back to Gurmanda. Um, but then it's, you know, he's he's presented this in this framework of, you know, the three marks of existence and the Four Noble Truths and the, the Eightfold Path, and you don't necessarily have to memorize all of this, right? You're operating within the framework that the Buddha has prescribed. And as long as you're in that framework, you don't you don't have to memorize all of this. It, it, to, to Mateo's point, it becomes a you know a guide um, to to walk through. So it's helpful for me because I I would want to go memorize all of this, and I I just realize that you don't necessarily have to do that. You just have to be in the framework and, and remember the framework. So and thank you for the teaching, Matt. It was great. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Lauren? Um, thank you so much for this teaching, Matt, and John, for your words. Um, I have a question. I, you know, I'm, I'm relatively new to this. I'm, I, a lot of it makes so much sense. I'm seeing so much in my life that um, can be abandoned or that I can become more dispassionate to, but without being in like total solitude away from the world, um, how, as Dhamma practitioners, do we reconcile having aspirations? Like, are you able to reach with for something without engaging in craving and clinging? Great question. You know, John talks about this a lot, and and we talk about it. There, there is skillful desire, you know, and that. Skillful desire is a desire to recognize and abandon craving and clinging. So you put it up against that. In your life, for you, is your aspiration craving and clinging to an idea, a wrong view of self that is acquisition-based and self-centered? Or is there something that is benevolent and compassionate and um, nourishing and something that is supportive of the understanding of Four Noble Truths. Mm. Thank you. Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> Julia? Thank you very much, Max, for the teaching. I love the way you presented everything. It's very beautiful. Um, I, I don't have anything to add. There's a lot of people here with us. Somebody else speak. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. Michael. Hi, Matt. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Um, uh, and there is quite a bit in this, this sutta, but I'm going to try to just uh, narrow uh, it down to a couple of things that I thought were interesting. Uh, I always look at the self as uh, that which is non distracted. You know? So, whatever it is that is, uh, and distractions be basically anything that occurs, but I, I do believe uh, that that to to recognize the distractions and then to find stillness in the moment okay, uh, keeps me from fabricating uh, or creating things that don't pertain to exactly what is uh, occurring. Uh, so. I look at, again, I look at the self as stillness. 
so I can stay in the present moment. So, so this passion forms when I'm concentrating on staying in the present moment and whatever the task at hand is occurring, if I have the right energy for it, and my mind isn't somewhere else. Uh, I also like the Self is also that which understands impermanence. I'm a firm believer that if we understand all the things that we are not, or recognize the not self, then we will understand better what the self is. Mm. And understanding better what the self is. The journey for me is that understanding, complete understanding of that self, and recognizing that distractions are just that. So if I can get to that point, then I can maintain uh, you know, a calm and peaceful existence without reaction to those things which are not self. So I also like. Um, well, hold on, Michael. I want to because that, that's that's excellent, and and that. The stillness that you're that you're referring to is establishing calm, yes. and that's that's what we're doing here on this retreat. That's that's what this retreat is about. So that the establishment of calm through the establishment of stillness, through the establishment of the four foundations of mindfulness, through the establishment of jhana, through the establishment of concentration. Is, is how we recognize and abandon not self. The other things, yes. Thank you. I agree. Uh, just, two, just two other things I want to say here. Uh, I liked the way, I guess John, this was you that uh, had done this, or I don't know if it was, uh, uh, you put a little hyphen between this and these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually like that a lot. Uh, um, as opposed to, I mean, uh, that's where the distractions are, uh, you know, uh, they create uh, an uneasiness about us, mm -hmm. no matter what they are. Distractions create some sort of dis-ease. Mm -hmm. That's the recognition that uh, I find, um, as opposed to being at ease, right? Yeah. So, uh, the distraction for me is the disease, dis-ease. And a non-attachment to anything that is occurring would leave me at ease. So I like that little play on words. Uh, for what it's worth, I was involved in it. That's all I have to say. Thank you very much. Thanks, Michael. Becky. Hi, Matt. Hi, everybody. <clears throat> it's really nice to be here again in person. Um, it's it's a an experience. Experiencing one of the jewels in person is the best. Haven't been here in person for a few weeks, so I'm happy to be back. Um, this sutta is good for me right now because it talks about a mind rooted in ignorance, continuously self-identifying with impermanent objects, events, views, and ideas. And I've been having a lot of trouble not doing that lately. <laughs> More so, I've 
you go through these periods where you are you are calm you can recognize the impermanence you can be in a spot where you're not taking things personally which to me establishes the whole umbrella of the Eightfold Path. Once you get into that right view, your days can be auspicious. But then you go and you get into some sort of trough where you have to really work hard uh, with your practice to bring yourself out of it. But what's great is that you know that you've done it before and you can do it again. And it's just a matter of continuing your practice and avoiding the hindrances and avoiding the doubt, which I'm struggling with at this point in time. But being back here and having this retreat, I'm sure will be a stepping stone to getting back to right view. So thank you very much. Yeah, and, and, you know, a, a really foundational aspect of the practice is what? Establishing calm. And can, do we have, is, is it easier to recognize impermanence when we're calm, or is it easier to recognize impermanence when we're not calm? When we're calm. Right. <laughs> so... Thank create you. that space. Yeah. If you don't create that space, that's the uninstructed. Yeah. You're mm-hmm. distracted by everything. Get distracted by it's not my fault. It's his fault. It's gives you that moment in time where you can return to your breath. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Matt. Yes, John. Yeah. John.
a Dharma practice that's rooted in this idea of understanding as opposed to the, the notion that I should be acquiring something through faith or merit or ritual, et cetera, et cetera. We, we touched on that last time, too. Thank you. Thank you, John. Justin. Thank you, Matt. As I was listening to the teaching, I kept going back to this thought about like people who identify with their their body or their job or you know all the not self. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I've talked to people who who identify like that, and when you really like pry why they won't let that go, or you know they all some of them kind of say like they're afraid of annihilation. Like, is, do you think that's, like, ignorance of the self? Like, Yeah, I mean, I think... That's why people believe in heaven, I think. Like, there's such a like a reaction to the feeling of maybe not existing. Yeah, well, it was like what we heard last night in that little poem in the Paragatha of, of the, the, the gentle breeze just blowing the leaf off. Yeah. yeah. And... It seems like that's innate. Is is the tree just that leaf, leaf, or is or is it more than that? Is that is that the whole tree? That's it. That's everything. That a gentle breeze could just, and now it's gone. No. So. That. You know that, annihilation. What's being annihilated is a wrong view of self. Which is scary. Which is terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Which is terrifying. Mm -hmm. Because we believe that the wrong view of self is the right, the right view. Mm -hmm. And that's that's where, the where there's desire, there's fear. Yeah. Right. And so when there's when you when there's no self reference, there's no need for salvation. I don't I don't need to aspire towards some type of heaven or to fix something if there's no self reference. What if there's no self reference, what is there to be fixed? There's just what's occurring. Right. And that's the ultimate liberation of understanding. But in order you know, to understand that, the, the, you have to kind of look into the It, it feels like annihilation when my views are stuck in self-reference, but everything I see is me. And everything that I'm doing in my life is to, is to continue this me, this notion of me. But when I let go of self-reference, when I stop seeing myself in every thought, word, and idea, there's nothing left to save, so I stop grasping after salvation. It's it's not it's not something that um, I'm putting the brakes on anymore. It's it's not even a, a consequence of my thought process because there's no self-reference in this yeah. moment. Yeah. It's it's only it's only a preoccupation with self that would that would create the need for something beyond our physical plane that we can't even experience or understand or even rationally believe in. You know, it takes a huge leap of faith to think that there's anything past this moment. Because what else is past this moment? Except you know, the next the next breath that, that connects me to this moment. But the idea that I need to, to, to um, create a, a conceptual establishment of myself in any way, whether it's the next moment or the next life or the next eon, is rooted in self-reference. So once all self-referential views are gone, there's no need for grasping after salvation. It's just it's a moot point. 
Absolutely. Absolutely, John. And you know, and that's what's what's being saved. Me. The idea of me being saved and carried on to the next thing. You know, so that I can keep being me. For a better moment, when I'm more prepared, when I'm, I'm, I'm bigger, better, stronger, younger, more hair, you know, and, and, or am I going to live the only moment I can live, which is right here and right now? So again, getting back to what Lauren used that important word, that aspiration, am I aspiring to something, be something else? Or am I, am I something being what I am right now? And then in this moment, of course, I'm, I'm, <laughs> engaged with integrity with what I'm doing because I'm not distracted by um, uh, a disintegrating lack of integrity a disintegrating moment because of my self-reference yeah it always helps me everything's happening everything only happens in the moment Mm -hmm. so if I'm stressing Mm -hmm. about the future that future is only going to happen in the moment I'm in right now Nothing ever happens right. anywhere but the moment we're in, which is yep. mind blowing, but also makes me feel at ease. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Because that's all I can deal with is what is right in front of me right now. And yeah. when that thing that I'm worrying about is going to be right in front of me at the moment that it is, and I can handle what I'm handling now, I'll be able to handle that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The future, right. the future yeah. is another right. present moment. Yeah, the future is just another yeah. present moment. Yeah. Excellent. Nina? Um, I found this sutra to be really concrete and relatable, kind of like Jeff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what was going on in my mind is how impermanent human form is. And then going through all those properties, because um, pretty sure the Buddha never had a baby, but like, <laughs> there's a really good metaphor for getting pregnant and giving birth. Like you have no control over that process and you can't stop it or control anything that goes along with that. So um, I could really relate. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, then it, then it's just about how we establish ourselves in trying to control it or change it or fix it or get rid of it you know and that that's all I'm making it and it's so impermanent yeah we can do all that and still nine months later get used to you yeah. uh-huh. Jane thank you that teaches um, you know I learned a lot of new not learned but a lot of words have come to the forefront since I began my practice like fabrications ignorance restraint not me but the word that means most is the impermanence the understanding of impermanence Mm -hmm. because when i think about all the things i stressed about over my lifetime which is a lot (laughs) and and none of them matter i mean nothing i stressed about has any meaning right now and so it it keeps me from stressing in the present and impermanence also helps me with the impetus to be in the present because I can't, you know, I am going to age, I'm aging and I'm going to die and so, you know, there's your impetus, well, live right now, you can, what you do right now. So that word has really changed my life. Me too. (laughs) Laura? 
Good morning, everyone. I'm happy to be here. Um, yeah, that was really nice what you said, Jane. I, I too, am learning a lot um, as a new student, a lot of you know, new concepts, new words. Um, but I like how we just talk about a lot how the world, quote unquote world, that I constantly fabricate and construct in my mind is um, nothing but an illusion. And um, this is what we learned today, I guess, is that it's a kind of a cognitive training, a way that you can just return to the sensation of breath in the body. And that it's simple, but it's difficult to retrain your mind. Um, but with practice, it becomes easier and more natural. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's in the world, in any world, in any thought, in any feeling, in any idea, in any object, in any event. This is happening all the time, on its own, all the time. And that is what's occurring. Now, 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 now. So sensitive to the breath in the body, sensitive to uh, the arising and passing of thoughts and feelings with the arising and passing of the breath in the body, that's, that's, our, that's our reference. That keeps bringing us back to what's occurring. And whenever we're distracted, confused, lost, in pain, we can come back to just what's occurring right now. While we're distracted, in pain, stressed, we're still breathing. Mm -hmm. So we have that. Jen? Good morning, good morning, everybody. So something that I'm hearing in what people are saying, and then also it could just be what has been coming up for me is real subtle uh, piece of the practice that I'm going to try to explain, but we'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, wanting things to be different is going on all the time on a super subtle level. And the more we can observe that and really see it, really see it, requires so much concentration and so much calm, which is why this practice is cultivating calm. You have to cultivate that. And the more you concentrate and cultivate calm, you can observe yourself wanting things to be different. And initially, wanting things to be different can be real obvious, but as your practice deepens, you want your practice to be different. You want your physical body to be different. 
you want your reaction to your practice to be different. And it's a super subtle distraction. So, which is why it's so important to keep your eyes on the prize, especially in meditation, and even off the cushion, when you have this awesome opportunity where you recognize that you're stressed. You see the tension within yourself. If you have a second, can come back to the breath in the body, feelings arising and passing away, thoughts arising and passing away, and allow for that insight of what am I wanting to be different right now, and how can I lean into that and really watch it? Not to change it, not to make myself not want to make something be different, just to simply observe that I'm doing that and that causes stress. Thank you. Cold weather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's recognizing the not self. Just yeah. yeah. Just yeah. I like that, John. Thank you. And I got what you're saying is that when you are wanting something to be different, that's your anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. And but also wanting it to be different. You can't make yourself not want it to be different, yeah. which is what a worrier will do. Yeah. Oh, I want that thing to be different. Now I have to make myself not want it to be different. Yeah. Yeah. That's like meta stress. You're like adding. <laughs> you know, but it's so subtle that you don't yeah. even see it until you start to go, oh, look how I'm doing that to myself. Oh, okay. That's, that's the concentration. That's the, you need that concentration and calm to see that. Mm -hmm and like lean into it and just observe it and recognize it as this is your Dhamma practice. Yeah. And as soon as that's, that's the thing that personalization is that clean in that we're, when we're leaving this moment now, we're, we're into judging the next moment or wanting something out of the next moment, <laughs> wanting that moment to be different. We're not even there, mm -hmm. but we'll go there. And we can't see that we're doing that until we develop some measure of calm through this practice. Which is craving, right? Craving is that process of leaving where I am and going away from where I am into the next thing. How will I fix the fact that I want this to be different? Right. Yeah. That's, That's craving. That's, it's a process yeah. of getting ahead of the moment by personalizing it yeah. mm -hmm. before the moment even happened. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very and subtle. If you're all describing it, what Jen talked to directly is that the first understanding of abandoning. And it's, it's directly recognizing that I am distressed and diseased in this moment because I'm craving for it to be different or to be more or less. And what do we do with it? We don't analyze it, we just simply abandon it. And that was, that was a, a great explanation of the conceptual. Um, look of the Dhamma but the practical application that's so well said. Thank you. Yeah. Mary. It's recognizing desire, right? It's yeah. just recognizing desire now. Yes. Mm -hmm. As it arises. Yeah. As it arises. Yeah. As it occurs, life occurs. I should say as it arises and passes away, because all yeah. you have to do is take take a breath and it will pass away. You don't have to do anything about it. So it, it's interesting um, that what is causing us so much disease is 
considered subtle because it's right. But if you, as you go along, it's not so subtle because you can probably feel it somewhere in your body. Mm -hmm. You know, it's yeah, just it we're, we're numb to it or we think we're, the way we're feeling um, is the way we're supposed to be feeling, you know, that this is how you live. And by creating that space of observing, you're creating enough space to then interrupt and to not overanalyze, but to just interrupt it. And just to know that we can interrupt it is to almost stop it from happening in a way. Mm -hmm. And then through the observation of it, the realization that it's not serving you, it has no purpose, and it may happen again, but you're getting closer to the leaf blowing in the wind because you're, not, you're giving it less and less energy and it becomes less self-referential because it's sort of further away from you and you can see the craziness of it. But, you know, we, sometimes we see the craziness of something, but we still keep doing it. That is our human behavior. <clears throat> so it takes more than just, you know, intellectually recognizing it. it, it and I find that the different tools that we've learned here, whether it's Qigong or if you have the opportunity to sit or if you can get up from where you are and move somewhere else. I mean, I grew up hearing my mother say, you know, when you had teenage angst, go walk around the block. And I would be like, why? It's still going to be here when I get back. She said, maybe it won't, you know? And, um, uh, and it's really true. Like just creating that separation to give yourself enough time to get some right view and see it for what it is, and then start recognizing the patterns. Because then when you start recognizing the patterns, you can see that it's something that in time needs to be abandoned. So, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that, that like John always says, that the continuity obscures impermanence. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. the, the, the speed at which this is happening is, is faster than thought. And so it appears like it's continuous, mm -hmm. but really it's just going poof, poof. And we have to have a measure of calm to be able to see that there is space there. But the ignorance is those poofs are almost like a chain. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's recognizing that that's what is occurring. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Matt, for this teaching. Um, really great contributions going around the room. And um, yeah, you added a lot of clarity to this sutta. Um, you know, as John's sort of translation says, abandoning disease. And we've been talking about this. And sort of the question is, you know, what is disease? And we've come up with some good uh, explanations for that you know one of them is resisting you know when we're holding on and our practice and our qigong we're resisting to impermanence that's a form of disease we've also just hashed out how desire is disease it's it's we are not at ease when we are desiring things to be different and we've also talked about last night how the mind's natural state and the buddha describes us is calm so when we are calm we're actually at ease with impermanence with craving and clinging. However, until we develop some 
something to interrupt those two, we're not able to experience cessation. And, and I really uh, liked how you zeroed in here, what we've been talking about. As we cultivate calm, that yields from what we're planting, our, our crop of calm, if you will, we're yielding dispassion. We're yielding the ability to be at ease. We're, we're, we're dispassionately observing, as the sutta explains, mental processes. Therefore, when we're able to have the calm overlaying this experience, we're able to really get to the breakthrough that the Buddha describes in the Third Noble Truth, cessation. We're able to see five dispassionate points of reference, passively, passively observe them, the five clinging aggregates, arise and pass away. Just as the world arises and pass away, passes away. Excuse me. So I really like how we all are keeping this thread going. We're cultivating calm, which helps alleviate, as Dr. Kevin said, in a medical context, our disease. We've got a problem in our thinking, and the Buddha is very clear about how he takes us anywhere we're trying to go, in another realm, non-perception, physical, out there, heaven, in the body, you know, and he's taking us right back here and through the power of Ananda, the direct Dhamma is expressed that way. And I think that's why some of these sutras are so powerful, because it's a transmission of the Dhamma from the Buddha to Ananda. And Ananda is trimming the fat here. He's giving this to somebody as medicine. He's, he's administering medicine. Mm -hmm. Medicine is the cure for disease. And I think that's what we're working on here. So thank you. That's excellent. Thanks, Kevin. Good. It's as if John <laughs> planned out how these suttas were being presented. He did. He did. <laughs> he did. Let's just assume that that happened. Let's just assume that that happened. He may not have heard him. <laughs> but it, it so well lays out, and if you go around the room, Jeff and his experiences... Lauren and her question, Sangha mom and her difficulties. And we all have these examples. So think about the next teaching of the Salata Sutta and two arrows and our contributions and our responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And was Jeff asking the wrong question about not wanting to have the medicine, which is just a normal part of our lives? Or was he making it personal? And those are all good questions, and each one of us can come up with an example just today, because each one of us, something ran through our mind. Jen was a perfect example, your birthing example. So thank you for this. Thank you, dude. Excellent. Okay, Sangha, um, another excellent session here. Uh, we're going to finish, as we always do, with Metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. Um, so find your relaxed meditation posture. Establish calm. Establish your breath in your body.
This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing the wise would later approve. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or small, strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful session. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Matt. See you all at 1.30. One Thanks, everyone. And there is lunch. 1 or 1.30? 1.30 for the session. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.